Hello, my friends, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the confines and the walls and the fences of institutional religion. This is episode number 35 of the podcast. It's episode number 10 of season two. And my guest is a familiar one, if you've been listening to us for a while, Rabbi Victor Yurecki, who was with us just a few months ago in episode 29. And he's back to talk about how viewing the Passover and Easter narratives and traditions through an interfaith lens can create deeper meaning of those traditions for people regardless of their faith experiences. We also talk a bit about how the Passover and Easter stories can actually help people navigate spiritual deconstruction, and we spend a little time at the end talking about the theology of WandaVision and the Marvel Universe, so you'll want to be sure to stick around for that. So once again, please welcome back to the podcast, Rabbi Victor Yurecki. Passover is the signature holiday for the Jewish people. It is the moment that we understand our relationship with God, that we understand the meaning of hope and redemption, because here were the Jews after 210 years of slavery are redeemed, not by the hand of Moses, but by the liberation of the hand of God. So our guest for this episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast should be a familiar one to you if you've been listening to the podcast for a while. I'm really excited uh, to bring back my friend Rabbi Victor Yureke from uh, the B'nai Jacob uh, Temple in Charleston, West Virginia. And um, so Rabbi Yureke, welcome back. It's it's so good to have you back with the folks here at Accidental Tomatoes. Thank you, Joan. It's good to be back. Yeah, yeah. I think you might be my first repeat guest. I'm not sure. I'll have to... I have to dig back through my my archives and see, but um, yeah. So so you joined us um, a few months ago, and we were having this um, really interesting conversation about interfaith dialogue and why it's so important for people from different faith traditions to to be in conversation with one another, to to create friendships with one another, um, to understand each other better. And um, so I, I kind of some of what I want to talk about today will jump off of that conversation. But before we get into that. Um, just, you know, for for folks who may have forgotten or who maybe didn't catch the episode that you were on with us before, if you just uh, introduce yourself real quickly, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do, and uh, then we'll roll from there. Okay. Well, thank you again for inviting me back. Uh, as I said, my name is Victor Yurecki. I'm the rabbi at B'nai Jacob Synagogue in Charleston, West Virginia. Came in 1986, so we are approaching my 35th anniversary here. And uh, it's been an incredible journey, an incredible learning experience uh, in ways I never thought possible. Coming to West Virginia as a Orthodox ordained Jewish rabbi, which is kind of an oxymoron. It's Jewish rabbi as a, as a rabbi. But discovering my faith tradition through the eyes of so many Christians. And that has been what really I, I reflect back on these 35 years. There's been many very powerful memories. But one of the things that I will always take away is the experience of learning from ministers, priests in the Christian faith, and really discovering the commonalities that we share. And I don't think I would have experienced that in a bigger community, but I got that opportunity here in West Virginia, and I'm very, very blessed in that respect. Yeah. Do you think maybe part of that is... I, and I think we maybe we touched on this a little bit the last time you were with us, but 
because in a place like Charleston, West Virginia, the Jewish community is such a minority community. Do you think that has something to do with why your experience of your own of your own faith is so um, so much more influenced by people of other faith traditions? I think to a degree. I think what's what's happened in at least in my life here in Charleston is there there is a tendency within all of us, and I can speak for myself, to be very insular. I mean, we are tribal by nature. We stay with our families. We stay with our congregations. We don't want to be outside of our comfort zones. And yeah. as you said, uh, being a small community, um, from day one, uh, people from the Christian faith have reached out to me, to the other rabbis in our community down through the years, because they want to have conversation. They want to learn. And that's a, a tribute, I think, to a lot of the people here in West Virginia. You know, we have that... Uh, Unfortunately, that stereotype, sometimes it's sometimes stereotypes are correct, but oftentimes not. But the idea that um, people here are very, you know, closed minded. And that's not been our experience with many within the Christian community. They want to discover other faith traditions and see where we have the common commonalities. And uh, that's been a blessing for me. That's allowed me to really explore my faith on a, on a level I never thought possible. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of leads into where I wanted to go with this conversation. Um, I think, you know, the last time you were with us, uh, the, the episode released somewhere in the vicinity, you know, the, the Hanukkah and Christmas season. And we had a brief conversation then about how um, those holidays sort of coincided on the calendar, but didn't really have anything to do with one another as far as our respective traditions had to do. And and I, I believe you mentioned in the midst of all of that, that, you know, when it comes to to places where Judaism and Christianity really have some rootedness together, it would be in the Passover and the Easter celebration, which also fall, you know, very close together on the calendar. Sometimes they fall over the same weekend. They're, they're always within a few weeks of each other. Um, and so I just thought, you know, to kind of take that conversation from, from the very general conversation we were having before to some specific things around Passover and Easter, because I just think there's a lot in there um, that that maybe people from both traditions might not realize about how a better understanding from either side can make um, can make our experience of those holidays, feast days, however you want to refer to them, you know, uh, more more meaningful and more powerful. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we kind of touched upon last time, and we don't really need to read, you know, go back to that, but. The problem is Christmas is a very significant holiday. I mean, it's the birth of Jesus. Hanukkah is a minor historical event that happened to the Jewish people in 165 BC, about 160, 70 years before the birth of Jesus. And there's really no connection between them. One is a historical battle um, to recover the temple. The other one is the birth of you know, the Christian Lord, I mean, the Christian Messiah. And so yet, because of the shared traditions, the idea that America is a melting pot. There was this motivation to try to put the two together and try to compare and contrast them. Um, and they're, they're, they don't really connect. Unfortunately, the ones that do connect is, and I think that's what our conversation should be today, is Easter and Passover, because there's so many connections. Um, I think historically, the the tension between the two faiths has prevented us to have that rich conversation about the commonalities of those faiths. For the Jewish people, Easter down through the centuries was a very difficult time because that was the accusation of the Jews of 
Killing Jesus. The passion plays um, revved up a community and, and and caused communities to to have to start great harm to the small Jewish communities because here are the Jews that are still living and they're the ones that rejected Jesus and killed Jesus and pogroms took place throughout Europe. So the history of Easter was never very beautiful. Um, mm. And that, and as a result, you saw the separation. Meanwhile, within the Christian faith, I don't think there was enough thought given into how much the Last Supper would reflect a lot of the ideas and themes and motifs that are found in the Hebrew Bible and what Passover represents, the idea of hope, the idea of redemption, the idea of rebirth, because those are some of the messages and themes that we talk about during the holiday of Passover. So as a result, the two never had that conversation. Yeah, yeah, and I think... One of the things that I think a lot of Christians either either sort of forget or just don't they might like intellectually get it, but they don't spiritually acknowledge that Jesus was a Jew, right? Jesus what would have been, you know, a, a very devout Jewish person in his time and place in history and would have observed the Jewish feast days. And and I think Christianity largely, especially you know, within kind of what we might call the Christendom project where, you know, Christianity and, and state religion sort of get all kind of jumbled up together. Um, we, we miss how, how integral those Jewish traditions are to what it even means to be people who try to follow the way of Jesus. I think that's a great, I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, you've, you've got it on both sides. I mean, there, there is the, the tension not so much today, and I, I see clearly in, in terms of the the outreach that you see in Christian communities with the Jewish community, but you do see that tension that we don't want to emphasize too much of the Jewishness of Jesus for fear of watering down the authenticity of Christianity, which, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can't speak for Christians, but I think just the opposite. I think it enriches the background material, the source material that allows Christians to truly understand the the messages of Jesus in a new light, a new context, you have the same problem on the other side. The other side, because of historical tension that occurred, uh, the difficulties, the persecution, the idea of opening up the idea that Jesus was Jewish, that Jesus would have lived a Jewish life, by sharing that tradition with our Christian neighbors, we are suddenly no longer being authentic to our brothers and sisters who perished because mm -hmm. of what that uh, the the the, gro the growth of Christianity and the message of early Christianity uh, of that Jews killed Jesus did, and really we we should kind of I didn't say whitewash and forget that, but I think we can acknowledge it, but also acknowledge today that I think we grow. I, I'm an example of that. We grow in terms of uh, sharing our traditions and seeing where we find those commonalities. Yeah, and there's. I think there's so many implications across the board for just, you know, kind of taking more of a 30,000 foot view of the whole situation when we can begin to release our own um, tribalism, I guess, or our tendencies to to just kind of, you know, get with our group and, you know, we're right, you're wrong, we're in, you're out, um, which has been so harmful, um, especially, sadly, among white Christians. Um, and, and we were seeing that played out again in a time in history when we actually probably thought that was behind us. And we're learning now that it, that it wasn't that that sort of insular attitude, um, 
is so harmful if we don't open ourselves up to to those broader experiences of people that um, you know that have different life experiences and different perspectives. And I think this um, this time you know that we're coming up on of Passover and Easter maybe gives us one small opportunity if, if that's sort of the macro situation culturally in a micro way this, this Easter Passover connection gives us a way to start to break apart some of those tribal sorts of barriers, for lack of a better term, right? Sorts of barriers uh, that keep us from knowing one another better, which I think keeps us from knowing ourselves better. Yeah. One of the things that's been very successful here in, in our community, and I, again, I was very reluctant at first to do this, was to put on a Passover Seder for Christians. Hmm. Um, ideally, it would be nice to be able to have them, and some do come to our our personal seders, and more and more you see Jews inviting their Christian brothers and sisters and neighbors to their their family seders. But the idea of going to a church and, if you will, reenacting the seder, which gives an opportunity for pauses in the narrative, which you can't do in a family dinner, but you can do that in a church setting when you have a priest or a minister with you at the same time, where you can conduct a Seder as best as it can be done, not on Passover night, but with with the understanding that we can pause at certain moments and say, what does that say to you? Or what did this mean to you? And I love dialoguing with a minister at the same time while the Seder is going on, because through their eyes, they're seeing it from a different perspective. They are maybe even trying to see it in terms of, is this how Jesus would have celebrated Passover? The reality is no, because just as Christianity has, has evolved, if you will, so right. is Judaism. Um, rabbinic Judaism has really um, been the dynamic force of Judaism for the last 2,000 years. So what how Jews celebrated the actual Passover service 2000 years ago while the temple still stood, but it was about to collapse is far different than the way Jews experience it today. But through those connected experiences, Christians uh, see both and reflect on what Jews imagined back then, what Jews were thinking back then. Uh, what did Passover mean to Jesus and Jesus's disciples? And, I find it to be fascinating listening to the conversations that are occurring at churches while the Passover Seder is going. And then when we have a meal together afterwards, usually after the Seder is complete, we actually have dinner together and people have a chance to reflect, ask questions, talk. It's, it's fascinating because I'm seeing it from their eyes. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and again, what you've said is very important. We grow when when we encounter, we grow and we enlarge our own religious vistas when we have a chance to talk to other people who are equally devoted to faith, yeah. devoted to their faith, but they're equally devoted to God and understanding the overriding principle of all religions. And that is God wants us to love each other, and care for each other and come together at times of need. Um, when you see and encounter a person of another faith tradition who has as deeply uh, faithful and loving of in his faith tradition or her faith tradition, your life changes dramatically because yeah. then you want to learn with them. You want to see things from their perspective. You want to show them a text and say, you know, how did, how's this, what does this mean to you? And mm -hmm. I want to learn from them. Yeah. I know, um, for me, just in, in my own development, um, and I, I was one of those, like I grew up in a, in a United Methodist church, but never, 
I don't know. I, it, it took a long time before I really bought into it. <laughs> you know, I kind of had what what I have referred to as my own wandering in the wilderness um, kind of several years uh, of my life where I, I didn't really connect and then kind of drifted back into it. And, and when I did, um, the church that I came back into um, offered, you know, a, a Seder meal led by, um, I, I think it was an organization called Jews for Jesus. It was a mm. Messianic Jewish group. Um, but it, and, 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 you know, in hindsight, now I look back on that and think, while it was meaningful, it was also walking this very fine line of cultural appropriation that I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable with now, just in the way that that was done. But but it, it helped. That was one of the things that helped me, you know, as I was sort of developing or, or redeveloping my own sense of, of Christian faith, um, to have that deeper sense of who Jesus was. Um, and why those those things, why the Last Supper was important to us, why Good Friday was important to us, you know, um, other than just because it was these days on the calendar that we observed. Um, so just in, in that light, maybe let's back up a little bit. I, I want to define some terms, too, for folks that might be familiar when we talk about a Seder meal, mm-hmm. um, you know, so let's let's kind of define that. But let's let's sort of re- rewind the whole tradition back to the Exodus narrative, if we could. Um, because I think that gives us the context for where we talk about Passover and subsequently the Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter observation as well. Okay, and definitely, and let me, if I can, rewind just a little bit of what you just said. Sure, that was sure. also one of the forces that um, that urged me on to want to do Seders for Christians. And that is because we were hearing that Jews for Jesus, Messianic Jews were were doing satyrs like that. And again, one of the we have a, a, a Judaism is a pretty large tent. <laughs> it covers quite a bit. But uh, someone who believes in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, by definition, is a Christian and yeah. nothing wrong with that. But as you said, that becomes a, a, an inappropriate forum for someone then to be able to speak about the Passover Seder. So. I felt it was much more important for Christians to see it from a Jewish person who keeps it within the traditions of Judaism. Yeah, again, yeah. nothing wrong with a nothing wrong with actually a Jew saying, I, I believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and, and I want to take with me some of my Jewish heritage. Nothing wrong with Christians um, wanting to study the Jewish traditions and keep a Seder because they believe that that's what Jesus. But to be a Jew for Jesus definitionally is, seems to be very fraudulent to me. Um, again, it would be like a, a Christian for Muhammad, thinking that Muhammad is the last prophet when obviously in Christian faith, it's Jesus is the the final, yeah. <laughs> the, the final messenger, if you will. Um, but again, uh, that's just a side point. But let's talk a little bit about, about Passover, which is your question. Judaism looks at Passover as the birth of our nation. It also, for us, Passover represents a parallel tradition, if you will, to Christianity's um, love of God. In Christianity, you always hear it, God so loved the world that he gave his only, only begotten son to redeem the world. In Judaism, a little narrower focus, but is God so loved the Jewish people that he took them out of the land of Egypt to give them his law so they will become a light unto the nations. And it starts with the Passover story. That's why Hanukkah doesn't hold a candle to Christmas. Mm. You know, it's not the same thing, but Passover is the signature holiday for the Jewish people. 
It is the moment that we understand our relationship with God, that we understand the meaning of hope and redemption, because here are the Jews after 210 years of slavery are redeemed, not by the hand of Moses, but by the liberation of the hand of God and how God took us through the wilderness. And we connect the holiday of Passover with the next holiday that occurs seven weeks later, which is the giving of the Torah, the Hebrew Bible at Mount Sinai, the holiday of Shavuot. So those become the two bookend holidays, which both look at the Jewish people as a nation that God loved, but also God loved us and gave us responsibilities. The gift that he has given us, again, to parallel with Christianity, is not only begotten son, but his words, the words that were given to us, revered to this very day, which is the Torah. So that's in 30,000 feet. That's how we're kind of looking at Passover. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to take just a minute to thank some of the folks that help us make the Accidental Tomatoes podcast happen through our Patreon giving platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can be part of a growing group of people who are committed to helping create and curate all the great content for the Accidental Tomatoes community. We're grateful for the contributions of all of our patrons, and I'd like to recognize our master gardener-level contributors, Jen and Harry Morgan, and Kevin and Heather Malcolm. To learn more about how you can support this podcast and the community we're creating, just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes. You can also support our work by simply leaving us a rating and review on your favorite streaming app. That helps other folks find our community and participate in the conversation. And now... Back to the podcast. So the Seder meal, what we refer to now as the Seder meal, is an outgrowth of that the original Passover meal um, that that God commanded through Moses uh, for the Jewish people to partake in the the day before they're liberated from Egypt. Correct. Right. Yeah. If you look at and, the Seder, I'm sorry. If you look at the Seder, the Seder, the Seder was a commandment found in the book of Exodus to remember this day. That's why I said, there's where the parallels you start seeing where Jesus saying, remember this. Okay. This is my blood. This is my body. Okay. In the Jewish tradition, remember this day because this is the bread that you ate, the bread of poorness, which is um, Lechem Oni, the poor bread now becomes the source of a reminder that, that God will redeem you. Remember yeah. the lamb sacrifice that you did in the land of Egypt and how God passed over your homes. Again, it's the love story in parallel form with Christianity with regards to Easter, but it starts with the Jewish tradition. Now, Christianity can now evolve in a different direction, but from yeah. Jewish, it's the ongoing tale and the reminder that God will always be with the Jewish people, will always um remember us in the darkest moments and during those darkest moments we know that things might look bad but god has never abandoned his people Mm, and that's been the movement that has kept the jewish people going we remember the bitterness we're supposed to eat the bitter herbs to remind us of the bitterness and then again the stories and the motifs and the themes just as christianity has evolved the message and and the ministry of jesus into so many wonderful teachings of jesus so too the story of passover the liberation teaches us so many stories the idea of loving the stranger in your midst because you are a stranger in the land of egypt remember remember the wanderings the journeys of the jewish people as they left egypt everything then becomes it flows, if you will, out of the Passover story in the Jewish tradition. 
That just, um, as you were saying that, that it kind of reminded me of um, something that I've seen happen a lot in in Christian um, communion or Eucharist ceremonies is as as we go through the liturgy, you know, and it's and it centers very strictly around the the, the bread and the wine or in United Methodist parlance, the Welch's grape juice, which we <laughs> <laughs> non-alcoholic wine, I guess that is. <laughs> but, um, you know, th- those were integral parts of a larger liturgical act that Jewish people have been doing for thousands of years before Jesus ever did it. Um, and Jesus and his followers are following that shared liturgy of their community, um, in the night, you know, that we call the last supper. Um, and so often I hear um, people who are leading that that um, communion liturgy will say uh, th- they'll give a nod to the original Seder meal. And say, you know, Jesus met with his friends for the Passover meal, and 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 they might even go so far as to say he he took parts of this um, ritual and infused them with new meaning. You know, when when he gets to the part about you know this is this is my body given for you, this is my blood poured out for you. And I, I get where that comes from, but as as I was hearing you sort of explain it from your perspective, what it made me think of, it's not necessarily that Jesus infuses that liturgy with new meaning as much as it is he infuses it with a richer meaning, right? He, he adds to the depth of the meaning. He doesn't change what was meant in the traditional Passover ritual, I don't think. Um, but in what we've come to, to to know as the communion or the Eucharist, the, those elements that we as Christians kind of share as sacramental moments, is it's it's almost like here's how you've understood this up till now, and now you're ready for more, not something different, but something more. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, there's there's appropriation that's not good, and there's appropriation that is good. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, and I and I always. I mean, I can't speak directly uh, because I'm not a Christian in terms of the the deeper messages that maybe Jesus in, injected into it. Okay, that's not my tradition, but I, I certainly understand and respect and love that Christians and take it and and go in a different direction. But what I think is important for for me and the contribution I can give to my Christian brothers and sisters is for them to see it through the eyes of what was going on during that time. Um, mm. think of, think of Jesus, you know, you think of a, a Seder, a Passover meal, you know, today we think about it, it's with a family, but think about Jesus. He's with his disciples. Now that sounds strange. Yeah. I mean, what, what about your family? Don't these disciples? No, because even in our literature and even in our Haggadah, the book that we use on Seder night to retell the story, it talks about five rabbis that are in B'nai Brak. They're in a cave. And retelling the story of Passover all night. Now, why are these five great rabbis? I mean, some of the most famous rabbis all sitting together huddled because these were the darkest moments of the Jewish people's history. And again, yeah. during the time of Jesus, these are the darkest moments. I don't think people have proper context to know it wasn't just the darkest moment for Jesus and Jesus knew what was happening, you know, as, as a Christian narrative goes. But it was also for his disciples, but it was also for the Jewish community. This was a time of great turmoil. And yet think about how meaningful the Passover story was for these rabbis and for the people at that time. Because 
they're reminding of themselves the dark moments of Egypt. You know, this is the 10th plague. They don't know that they're about to be liberated. They keep hearing this story, but Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. Now yeah. the angel of death is passing over the homes. They have to, I mean, if we want to get deep into the, the weeds of the story, they were being told by Moses to take the lamb, which was one of the deities of the Egyptians, and slaughter it and not eat it raw or cooked, as it says, but to to roast it, which means you have to do it outside as an act of defiance against their Egyptian uh, persecutors and tormentors. Think of the same story that's going on during the time of Jesus and his disciples. Mm. Now compare those two stories. He's telling his disciples, don't be afraid. And that's the message of Passover for the Jewish people during that time too. Do not be afraid that God will redeem us, that that message of the five rabbis that we tell is why were they telling the story? One of the rabbis even asked, why are we telling this story at night? Which is a euphemism for why are we telling the story when we are back in Egypt, if you will? We're yeah. under the Roman boot, just like we were under the sandal of the Egyptian slave driver. Why are we celebrating? There's nothing to celebrate. And what the disciples of Jesus are hearing, I'm sure from Jesus, but the disciples of these rabbis were being told by their by their leaders is no, no, we are still liberated. The gift that God has given us, that he loves us, he cares for us, that there is hope, that there is a, you know, there is a, a dawn that is coming. We got to continue to tell this story because this is the message that we carry with us for time immemorial, because we will remember that God took us out of Egypt. God cared for us. God will continue to be with us even in these darkest moments. So those are the parallels that I guess from a Christian perspective, I'm wondering if by hearing that story, that gives new meaning to the Last Supper, the fear that the disciples had of what was going on in the world around them. And their teacher is telling them, do not be afraid. I'll be with you. Yeah. And here the rabbis are doing the same thing. I, I think sometimes, well, a lot of times I think, um, I, I know speaking from the, the Christian perspective, we have such a tendency to over-spiritualize that, that moment, right? And, and to see it only as Jesus symbolically doing something that has to do with the, the final dispensation of our, you know, disembodied soul whenever we exit this earth. And and I think you're absolutely right. We we fail to take that moment in in all of its cultural and political and societal and economic, like all of those implications that go with that go into that moment. And and one of the things that I that has always been really important for me to try to understand better from um, from the Jewish perspective is that focus on the community as a whole over a focus on an individual, like the, the individual is important, but mostly in so much as the individual is part of the community. I think a lot of, especially American Christianity has so hyper individualized our faith um, it, with this notion of Jesus as, you know, my personal savior, which I think misses the point, you know, and, and I think the Passover is such a beautiful reflection of how that, that sort of individualism and over-spiritualization spiritual, can miss the point. 
of what's actually happening in that moment um, that you were referring to. And and we do the same thing from in another angle, because you'll if you ask Jews, the average, the average Jew, what is Passover about? Well, it's the ongoing story of they tried to kill us. They failed. Let's eat. You know, when there is <laughs> there is much more spirituality that's missing. So mm. we're going in the opposite direction and we so benefit from the idea of talking to Christians because it roots us back to what the story really is. It's not about they tried to kill us and, you know, they lost and let's eat, but it's the idea that God loved us and redeemed us and that God is invested in this world. That's the message you hear a lot in Christianity, which is a good message. That's yeah. understated too often in, in Judaism, maybe because of the jaundiced history that we've experienced in life. It has been the story of people trying to kill us. But the overarching story is that somehow the Jewish people continue to survive. And maybe there is something magical about this people that God continues to have his eye on. And, you know, those are the spiritual moments that I think people stop and say, hmm, I, I think we need to reevaluate that. And we do we do that when we have those conversations with Christianity, because Christianity, as you said, does the opposite. It makes it much more of a Jesus is, is, is God and cares for us. And, you know, it's more personal where we're kind of making it very impersonal and uh, we would benefit from that personal experience with God. That's so interesting. And, and it strikes me how conversations like you and I are having this when when our traditions are in dialogue with each other it it's so i guess grounds this this notion of um the mutuality of the material and the spiritual you know that these things don't exist separately from each other but it, but exist in this beautiful um coexistence you know where we try to over spiritualize sometimes you know you all may over materialize things sometimes and that that might not be the right language yeah. for it but but when we're when our traditions are in dialogue with each other it, it's more than the sum of its parts i guess is what i'm trying to say america is the beautiful experience of recognizing that we each can bring something to the table i mean that's the american experience it wasn't yeah you know you know the the idea of the melting pot we learn in america to make space for others at least on our best moments we try to do that you know when we try to make that more perfect union religion at its best learns to make space for the other recognizes that the diversity of religion is not something to be frightened with but actually we should celebrate and it's yeah. wonderful when we hear other people speaking in the voice of god because when you hear the other voice, it's supposed to be frightened. And, and here's the other problem we do. We try to compare, but it's like, why am I better? Let me see. Let me, uh, they're saying, yeah. but we're better than that. No, as opposed to looking in and saying, that's awesome. I like that idea. How can I grow with my faith tradition with that additional fertilizer, if you will? You know, that's really rich and helping the soil of my faith. We, we don't want to do that because we're afraid. We want to think that our religion, our faith traditions and our, and our rituals and our beliefs are complete. We don't need anything else, you know? And I don't think that's the case. I think we all are on this great journey in this quest to understand the meaning of life, um, 
how do we encounter God? We're all spiritual journeys and we all on our backs have a, an interesting backpack of different things. You bring it through, you said, the Methodist tradition. Um, I'll bring it from the Jewish tradition. But, you know, when you have something you take out of your backpack and I say, oh, that's a pretty neat compass. Yeah, I use this to do this. Whoa, I don't have that. Can I borrow that and look and see? That's yeah. when we grow and we this journey becomes even more exciting spiritually. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. That all kind of speaks to to kind of the next question I wanted to ask too, because I think, um, you know, for, for a lot of folks that listen to this podcast are people who find themselves in, you know, sort of um, maybe on the outside looking in of religion. You know, we we a lot of folks who have gone through some kind of spiritual deconstruction, and and I think when we talk about this sort of bigger picture of spirituality, apart from, um our institutions, not excluding our institutions, but maybe beyond um, the, the the confines of our institutions. I think that kind of language resonates um, with, a one of, with a lot of folks. And one of the things I was thinking of as I was kind of preparing to, to speak with you today was, you know, trying to think of folks in the audience who um, maybe have left their faith communities, whether it's a Christian community or a Jewish community or even a, you know, a Muslim community or, or whatever it might be who can't, you know, sometimes this kind of religious language we use can trigger some some pretty traumatic experiences. But I, I have a sense, and I think you started to touch on it there a little bit a minute ago, that there's a way that we can talk about these things um, that, um, that will help people who maybe have experienced some kind of religious or spiritual trauma still find some meaning without, without being re-traumatized um, you know, because I, I, I do think that there's some, in a non-religious use of the word, I think there's still some truth and some beauty in these, these stories, right. And, and these traditions. Um, so I don't know, what, what would you say to somebody maybe who is sort of on a deconstruction path about how, how these, the specific, specifically these traditions we're talking about of Passover and Easter, like how, how do you see those presenting some kind of deeper truth, deeper beauty in a way that might not be so religiously traumatizing? Yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. And uh, you've hit you've hit the nail on the head in terms of what I've seen from, and, and we have the same problem in our Jewish tradition that so many are, have abandoned because of, abandoned their faith because of what they experienced either growing up, um, the narrow-minded attitudes, the intolerance that they either experienced at home, if they were with a very religious family um, that didn't tolerate uh, deviations of thought or practices or lifestyles. And then you see the same thing in congregational life. How do you get them back? I, the truth is, I don't know. What, I'm, what I am discovering, though, is, and I'm doing a lot more of it, and you probably have seen it, I'm writing a lot more on social media. And within social media, it's a, a funny thing is happening to me in terms of my writing. I'm trying to write in much more of a universal religious tone. And part of it is because of the faith traditions I've encountered and realized the commonalities we share. Yeah. When you're able to take a, a sacred text that you've seen so often from a very narrow window and be able to open that up um, and then write about it or talk about it, that's a lot more inviting. And I've, in fact, I, I remember, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, somebody commented on and said, you know, I'm still never going to become part of a faith tradition, but I like this. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And you're, you're hearing that 
that implies to me that the messages of religion are still there and still positive. How do you bring people back and still allow them to see the rituals in a different light that in the past have been so put off? You know, they've been put mm-hmm. off by those. I don't know quite that. I, I think we're not quite there. I think we need to, I'm, I'm speaking to, to young ministers who are doing, I think, a great job in that, young rabbis, where they need to speak in a much more general tone. And then hopefully, hopefully people then would like to then sit at their feet and hopefully learn from them. And um, I think I, I can't speak for everyone. I'll try, try that the Passover story that I tell is not the same Passover story that they might hear long ago when they were growing up. Um, hopefully it's a little bit more inviting. Hopefully the rituals have deeper meaning. Um, some of the experiences that they saw growing up as Jews that traumatized them, that they didn't like. Well, now you have young rabbis um, who are approaching and speaking in a language and rituals that I think are less off-putting, if you will. Mm. And I think maybe ministers are starting to think that way. Um, It's going to take time. It's going to take a long time. That trauma is very deep, as you said. Yeah, yeah. I I love what you said about kind of universalizing some of those stories. And I think I think the idea of story itself is really important in that, too, just because I think a lot of folks, even though they may have, um, for a lot of really legitimate reasons, abandoned their religious traditions, are still really moved by the power of narrative and the power of story. And when we find ways to tell those stories that connect with something that we still sense somehow is true— and, and maybe it doesn't drive us back into the congregation, and, and maybe that's okay. Um, but it still connects us to some experience of the divine and, and what's real in the world. Um, one of the things you know, you mentioned your writing. I, I share a lot of your um, Shabbat messages that you put out um, um, every week, and inevitably, the people that will comment back to me very often will be people who have left the church, but will say things to me like, if my church would have taught stuff like this, I might not have left, you know? Um, and I think universalizing that story um, is, is really important. I think you're really onto something. There. And, and and it's funny, 30, 30 plus years ago, I don't think I would have written that way either because of the fact that we approach religion too often. And I'm just as guilty as a, a young rabbi that came in from a very narrow focus. It's about my people and the story is authentic. And I don't even use the word story. It is truth, you know, because that's how a lot of ministers, priests, rabbis, imams approach their faith tradition because for their congregants, for them to open the door and use the word story or myth with a capital M and a capital S, it doesn't mean that the stories aren't authentic. It just means that the stories are much more significant when they're not taken literally and not yeah, taken yeah. as history, what do they teach us? That's a very dangerous thought, I guess, for early rabbis and ministers when they start out. That's a very dangerous concept. The idea that the Passover story is more important as a as a narrative, not as history. What do you yeah, mean? The yeah. Passover story didn't happen. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is the story has much more deeper meaning when it's not taken literally when it's taken seriously. And that's a hard thing to come to because it means abandoning or feeling that you're inauthentic 
to your faith tradition. When in reality, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, the great rabbis, Jesus is one example, sp- spoke in parables. Those stories were not to be taken literally. There was it. What did our teacher mean by that? So if we can start looking at our text traditions, our rituals, what's the deeper meaning for it? What does it teach us today? I think people will feel a little bit more comfortable approaching, um, I guess, churches and synagogues and temples again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there. I can't remember who it was. I, I think it was a Christian writer that said something to the effect that um, that that um, the stories in Scripture are true, and some of them even happened, yeah. or something. Like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's that capital T truth and the small T truth, right? And, yeah. Um, and I, I I I consistently use words like myth and legend when I'm talking about for instance, the creation narratives. Um, not because I want to imply that those things are not true or didn't happen, but that those were stories that were intended to help people make meaning, right? Which, you know, that's how we create truth. And so um, th- there may be a difference between truth and facts or truth and, you know, historical occurrences, but that doesn't make them less true. Stories, and, and again, what you said is, I, there was a little phrase that you said, which I I used to always have that as a caveat. That doesn't mean that it's not true. Okay, we yeah. always had to do that because it's uh, it's us or me as a rabbi looking over my shoulder because somebody would say, "Wait a second, are you going to say that that's not true?" No, no, I didn't say that. To be able to be comfortable with the faith traditions and the stories and the heritage, and be able to say they're not. It's not about truth in terms of facts. It's about truths and what they teach us. To be able to let go of the creation story, for example, and look at it as a myth. To look at the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in terms of not, there wasn't Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and these are exactly what happened to them. But instead, what do the stories teach us? Mm. And when we are able to let go of that, I think we can see things that I think inspire and I think bring people back because again, there is, there is that hardening that many people have grown up that these stories happen. And if you don't believe it, you're going to hell. If you don't believe this, um, you know, you are unredeemed or you're a heretic as opposed to now these are the, these are the stories that our ancestors have carried with them, have given them to us that meant something to them. Let's explore it together because these are the stories that connect us to our past, give us ideas to think about in the present, and give us a compass for the future. These are beautiful stories. And and again, as, as someone who's Jewish, I'm learning to appreciate the stories found in the gospel, in the New Testament. Again, do I think it's facts? Do I, it doesn't make a difference. I'm not there because it's a history book. I'm there because those stories have touched the lives of countless people. And I want to hear those stories and I want to see them through the eyes of my Christian brothers and sisters who inspire me. And why are they inspirational people? It's because those stories have inspired them to greatness. So I want to hear those stories. Doesn't mean I'm going to become Christian. Doesn't mean I have to accept them as facts, but it does mean that those stories resonate. And if I can do the same thing from the Jewish experience, if I in any way have done something that inspires others, well, here are the stories that have inspired me and have told me what to do with my life. Let me share them with you. That 
that becomes a very positive spiritual moment, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think that whole notion of, of of scripture as wisdom literature in a really broad term has really been resonating with me a lot. They're giving language to like things that I think I've always kind of known or believed. Um, and, and it's been helpful in conversations, um, just like the one we're having, you know, to, to say, consider it a way of passing on wisdom through stories and accounts and perhaps some history, but also a lot of metaphor, right? And a lot of parables and those kinds of things. I, I, I used to, when I used to lead youth groups and was trying to help teenagers understand, I, the, the Jonas story was always kind of my go-to, like that story could be 100% historically accurate, factual, or it could be 100% allegory. And the story means the same thing, right? There, there's a truth that's related by that narrative that doesn't rely on the, whether it's fact or fiction. There, there's wisdom within it that, that makes, you know, the, the historical accuracy of it immaterial. I mean, as you know, I, I collect comic books and the, the story of the origins of Spider-Man when he doesn't save his uncle Ben in the last panel with great power comes great responsibility. Well, mm. What a powerful story. Again, that story has been told and retold so many times and in so many ways. Does it make a difference that there is a Spider-Man? It doesn't make a difference. The story <laughs> for a little kid was legendary to me. The idea that he didn't stop a bad guy and as a result of his indifference, an innocent person died. And now Spider-Man dedicates his life. The idea of a rocket ship coming down and teaching that an alien from another planet can help the world. What's those are stories. Okay. Does yeah. it make a difference that they're factual? No. If, and if you read them factually, it's like, I think you're a little off there. And to a certain <laughs> degree, I'm, I'm almost tempted to say, if, if all you're learning from the Genesis story is that God created the universe, then what's the point of it? I mean, read a, read a darn science book to learn how the origins of the universe, and you can still say, well, God did it. What does that do for us? What does it teach? What did that story teach our ancestors? And when we start unfolding that adventure, it becomes much more than just facts of how the world yeah. came into being, but the meaning of life. And that's what theologians have been doing for centuries to this very day. And that opens the door and invites others to join in that conversation. Yeah. Well, you gave me a perfect segue for for a, a place to sort of um, bring our conversation to a conclusion, which is um, the, the theology of WandaVision. <laughs> if you're going to invoke the Marvel universe um, in, in this day and age, um, and, and I know some of our viewers may not be um, uh, Marvel fans or watchers, but um, WandaVision is probably by the time this comes out, the first season um, will be done and you can go watch it all on um, whatever service it is that, that streams that. I can't keep them Disney all Disney Plus, yeah. Yeah, Disney Plus. Yeah, they, they, they have the Marvel franchise. Can we get now. a commercial in there and so we can get some little revenue? I, I'm, I'm hoping they'll sponsor. I'm hoping they'll sponsor the <laughs> podcast maybe. <laughs> but, we, you know, when, when, when you and I were texting um, in preparation for this, you'd said something about, you know, I want to talk about WandaVision. And I was like, oh, I want to talk about WandaVision too. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm maybe not as, as deep into the Marvel universe as I was. I was a big Spider-Man fan when I was growing up too. And then I, I didn't 
I didn't keep up with it very well. Um, and then my youngest daughter is deep <laughs> into, into all of the, she, she, she's deep into the cosplay world and, uh, all of that and loves everything Marvel. So she started watching WandaVision a couple weeks after we did. And she, now she's texting me every Friday night. Oh my God. Like, can you believe, you know, I tell you what um, they've done is amazing because this was, um, kind of risky the way they did the whole show. But more to the point, they actually took two characters that I've never been that interested in with Scarlet Witch and yeah. Wanda and uh, the Vision. And they've also added another villain that, I mean, she goes back to Fantastic Four number 94, uh, Agatha Harkness. and looks like she's going to be a major character. And Monica Rambo. It's another character that is, you know, in, in the Marvel Universe and, and DC as well, there's the A, B, C, and D characters. A's, of course, are the Spider-Mans and the Super right, right. Batmans. But then you get into the C and D characters. These are the characters that, you know... They, they they dust them off every now and then and kind of bring them back to keep the copyright going. And who would have ever thought that these characters would be so compelling? And the the actors they've selected have been amazing. They certainly yeah, have got I, their act together. Yeah. And, and I honestly, I do find, and maybe it's just because I'm a, I am sort of a theologian. I see theology everywhere, but there is, there is some theology to that. There's some theology in the, in the, the storyline itself. I think there's some deep theology just in what you just mentioned in the idea of taking, of elevating, um, elevating the, those who are obscure, right? I mean, that's one thing that both of our faith traditions teach uh, that I think we often lose track of is that God, God has a preference for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and, you know, the, the, the elevation of the second son, you know, over and over and over again in Hebrew scriptures like that, that says something beyond just what it says in its own narratives, right? It, it says something about the character, um, of, of who the divine is. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you're absolutely right. One of the nice things about comics is the many times the superhero is always the the nebuchadnezzar is what we call in yish which is you know the hard luck guy the peter parker is this kid that's always been made fun of in school and then he gets bit by a radioactive spider uh clark kent is this little meek mild man reporter but when he opens his shirt he's really superman but the idea that everyone is capable of greatness everyone has that spark of the divine um, but there is a lot of theology in comics. I know Stan Lee mentions a lot of the Jewish influence he had, but there's so many of the characters that were created by Jewish immigrants. I mean, the number of characters from Batman, Superman, and beyond, they were all created by Jews who came to this country and realized that we all can make a contribution. Um, mm. So there's a lot of both theology, but also history that affected the Jewish people. Yeah, that's such good stuff. It's such good stuff. Well, my friend, I'm so glad that you were able to to come back again for another episode of the podcast here. Um, I know uh, there's a there's a lot going on um, right now in in both of our worlds, and uh, I know you're you're kind of keeping an eye on what's going on um, in Charleston as our West Virginia legislature meets, and and we're trying to make sure that that the poor and the oppressed are still well cared for. Um, in a political world that doesn't often seem to want to do that. So I wish you, I wish you all the best in, in that work down there and, uh, and continued, um, blessings on, on the really important interfaith work that, that you've been doing and, um, the ways you're helping us all kind of see ourselves 
in a better light. Uh, you're very kind. Thank you for having me once again. Uh, maybe we, next time we'll we'll carry the conversation further into WandaVision or it'll be the Falcon and the Winter Soldier discussion. Oh, we've we'll got so much series. to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll, All right, we'll have a little friend. theology in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can we can squeeze some of that in. So, well, thanks again for for, for being my guest uh, today and, and I hope we talk again soon. Thank you. Once again, I am so grateful to Rabbi Yurecki for his wisdom, his warmth, and his generosity in helping us see how important it is not just for people of different faith traditions, but the traditions themselves to be in dialogue with one another. As always, if you're interested in the content that we are creating and curating for the Accidental Tomatoes community, you can find us online at accidentaltomatoes.com. And across the social media world, you can find us at Accidental Tomatoes. If you have ideas or suggestions for future podcast topics or guests, I would love to hear from you. You can find us again and contact us through our website. You can message us on social media, or you can send us an email at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And once again, if you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to give us a rating and review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. That will help other people find us and connect with our community and to participate in the conversation that we're having together. And once again, if you would like to support the work that we're doing here at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through Patreon, where your support helps us to offset some of the expenses of producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn more. And so until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us again for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.